At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 330th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. If you want to add a little bit more life to your backyard, have you considered trying chickens, goats, or other small farm animals? It's actually easier than you think, especially when you have Kari Spencer to help you get prepared. Just text CHICKENS to 33444 or visit BackyardFarmAnimals.com and you will receive our free webinar on how to raise chickens, goats, and more, promote biodiversity, and put your backyard animals to work. Today on our podcast, we have someone who has developed useful techniques for growing organically. We're talking with Ben Hartman about growing vegetables efficiently. Ben is the author of The Lean Farmer, winner of the prestigious Shingle Award, congratulations by the way, and The Lean Farm Guide to Growing Vegetables, both published in 2017 by our friends over at Chelsea Green. In that same year, he was appointed to the 2017 Grist 50, a list of emerging green leaders in the United States. He and his wife, Rachel Hirschberger, own and operate Clay Bottom Farm in Goshen, Indiana, where they make their living on less than one acre by growing and selling specialty produce to restaurants, at farmer's markets, and through cooperative CSAs. Welcome to the show today, Ben. Are you ready to rock? I'm here. Sweet. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. And for some reason, I've always had a proclivity towards a radical simplicity. And when I was between my senior year in high school, my first year at college, I took a trip to Guatemala. And I worked on farms for about three months. And on one of the farms that I worked, they gave me the task of emptying out the pea barrel. This is a 55-gallon drum where everyone from the village collected their urine. And it was my task to take a stick and poke a hole down to the roots of these these 15-foot-tall corn stalks and to literally pour, dip into the pea bucket and pour pea down the hole. Wow. I absolutely loved the task. And most people would, I think, probably... Cringe. Cringe is not something they would necessarily want to spend their summer doing. Right. However, I love the simplicity of it, the fact that fertility came from such a local source, the people in the village, and this the simplicity of working with the plants. And I knew from that point that I love farming, and I love doing it in a simple, in a simple manner. And when I got back to college... I wonder, I had lived for three months out of my backpack, mm-hmm. and I wondered, why couldn't I continue living in this North American context out of my backpack? And I knew it'd be a challenge because we're addicted to things, and especially in college, it can be hard to be hard to live that lean. However, what I did is in my dorm, dorm room, I set a, ru- a rule, 
And that was that if anything was to come into the room, then another item had to leave the room. And so I walked that first into my dorm room just with my backpack Mm -hmm. with a similar amount of items that I was living with in Guatemala. And if I needed a book, I would bring in a new new book and then get rid of a pair of socks or a pencil or something. It it didn't matter what the item was. It was just a one-for-one exchange. And I tried that experiment the entire first semester. And it it was successful in the sense that I missed it. However, then that the following semester, I decided to loosen up and allowed some artwork on the walls and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> However, it was a good way to start my adult life living on my own uh-huh. with that type of radical simplicity. Now, I have also had a proclivity, proclivity in the opposite direction, which is to say that taking on too much. And I always think I need to do more. I grew up on a large corn and soybean farm in northern Indiana. And... In the community in which I grew up, successful farms were big farms. Mm -hmm. And to be a successful farmer meant that you bought a bigger tractor every year. You rented or purchased more land. You put up another grain bin. You just got bigger and bigger every year. This is a way to stay in business. And these were the metrics of success. And this is the mindset with which I started vegetable farming. And so Rachel and I had purchased this five-acre piece of property. And we thought, okay, this is a stepping stone to a 10-acre property. And we'll get up to 100 or 200 acres eventually. Right. And we put up a couple greenhouses that first season. And then we thought, we probably need another greenhouse in the middle of the season. We did this other this push to put up a greenhouse in the middle of our busy growing season. And to make a long story short, I under-engineered the greenhouse. Oops. And it ended up on the roof of our barn. No, oops. Yeah, it was a big oops, and it was an eye opener. And what it made me realize is this mindset of constant expansion Mm -hmm. that you just have to constantly get bigger and grow every year. It was not going to work in the long run. It might help, might be a great impetus to get our business up and running. However, it was not going to be sustainable for us just emotionally for the long run. And so they say you teach what you need to learn. And so I really delved deep into these lean concepts because I wanted to farm. We really wanted to do this for a living. We wanted to raise our kids on a farm and live at home, make a living at home. However, I knew we were going to have to really buckle down and get lean, be shrewd in how we do it if we're going to do this for a living. And it turns out we loved the lean approach. We went from five acres down to four acres, to three acres, two acres, and one acre. And every year that we contracted the size of our farm, we got more profitable. Basically, our hourly wage went up because we're focused more and more on what it is that adds value for our customers. Uh And we rooted out the seven mudas, the seven types of waste that are identified in the lean system. Nice. Well, so you have two books. I have them both here. And Chelsea Green was nice enough to send them over to me. I'm looking at the Lean Farm, How to Minimize Waste, Increase Efficiency, and Maximize Value and Profits with Less Work. Gotta love that. And then the other one is the Lean Farm Guide to Growing Vegetables, More In-Depth Lean Techniques for Efficient Organic Production. By the way, these books are beautiful. Congratulations. Nice photography and you know, as I look through them, they looks like they're jam packed with amazing, you know, information on how to, you say lean, I'm going to actually propose that you mean efficient. Is that the case? Uh Uh-huh. Can you speak to that? The lean production system was popularized by Toyota in Japan. And that's kind of a term that MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, have codified their production system, and they call it the lean system. And there's all this Japanese terminology that goes Uh. along with it. However, it's really, these are old ideas. This is about doing more with less, Mm -hmm. about not wasting any effort or thing on the farm. And and really, this is how we used to farm in this country. I remember my, my ancestors used to hang their laundry. They have their laundry line out over the garden 
mm-hmm. so that the the water as it dripped from the clothes could irrigate the garden. Oh, beautiful! So nothing was wasted. Yeah. And it was this type of mindset. We have this in our gene. It's in the roots of American agriculture, and we've lost right. it. We've totally lost it. Yeah with our get bigger, get out agriculture. And what I'm trying to do is bring that type of mindset back to agriculture. And not just because it's the right thing to do, which it is. About half of our food that's produced in this country now goes uneaten. We have very wasteful food production. Oh, yes. system, you know? So it's the, it's, the, it's the right thing to do. However, it's also the prop, most profitable way to farm. Yeah. Especially for small scale growers. You can make a living by doing this. There are, there, are, there are a lot of new markets, a lot of new opportunities. There is actually real, real money in this business. You just mm-hmm. have to be shrewd and, and take a lean approach. Yeah. So you've gone from five acres to one acre. I have a third of an acre. And while I was in college 15 years ago, I went back to college late. While I was in college, my part-time job three days a week was growing food in my front and backyard. I harvested it and took it to the farmer's market. And I, you know, I'd make a couple hundred bucks a week uh-huh. hanging out at the farmer's market, grow, market, growing food for people. So what I hear you saying is that you're proposing that even on my third of an acre here in Phoenix, Arizona, I might be able to make a living off of it. You could absolutely make a living, especially in an, as close as you would be to an, so many accounts in an urban place like Phoenix. And just to let you know, last year we went from one acre to half an acre. We use less than half an acre to sell more than $100,000 worth of produce. And we're netting well more than half, making a comfortable living, doing it on just half an acre. And we have a town, our, the town in which we sell our food has a population of 40,000. Mm-hmm. So this is no Phoenix. We have to, yeah, we have to, we have to really get creative, making sure we we grow food that our customers actually will and will pay us for. Yeah. Well, we're actually in Phoenix. We're at 4.8 million people or so in the metropolitan area. So, yeah, it's quite different. That's a hundredfold bigger than where you're at. 4.8 million. Yeah. And imagine if they spent just one dollar on a daily basis on local. F- food. It's just a huge market. Oh yeah. It's mind blowing to think about it that way. So I want to look at your book and you know, there's a couple of these chapters in here that kind of pique my interest. And one of them, chapter one, every tool in its place. Tell me about that. One of our CSA customers actually introduced us the lean production system to us. And he owns an aluminum trailer company. And he came out and he said, I want to see you. He came out and offered to, to coach us on some lean, lean thinking. Uh-huh. And he said, first thing he did is, I want to see you prune your tomatoes. And so I walked 200 paces to our centralized tool storage area and got the pruners. Then I walked back to the greenhouse. I pruned a 100-foot row of tomatoes. Then I walked another 200 steps back to replace the pruners. And he made a very simple observation. He said, to prune 100 feet of tomatoes, you walk more than 500 paces. And he said, how about you put a hook in the greenhouse and you store your tools, you store those pruners close to their point of views mm-hmm. where you're actually using them. Right. And so what we proceeded to do was basically take a stick of dynamite to our centralized tool storage area uh-huh, right? and spread out our tools all across the farm on hooks and magnets and whatever to get them close to where we're using them. And before doing that, actually, and this is actually very important, is that we practice theory and the English translation is sort. In other words, we went around to our farm, every object on our farm, we asked a very simple question, which is, did you add value for me and my customers in the past growing season? Uh-huh. And you should have a quick answer. And if you struggle to come up with an answer, then the item should probably not be on the property. You should probably mm-hmm. get it off the farm. Right. So this is hard to do because we are hoarders. We went to all the auctions everyone else has gone to. And we, we just collected barnfuls of tools. 
Right. We got some hay wagons and we sent them off the property and we literally sent tons of tools and junk off the property. And it made just such an enormous difference to have just what we need in front of us. We're not spending time looking for the right hoe or whatever. It's where we need it. And we only, we farm with just a few tools too. They would fit in the back of a small truck. Mm-hmm. That's one of the lean principles. You want to choose as few tools as you need to, to get the most work accomplished. Perfect. And, and so Chapter four is 10 types of farm waste. Now, the way I've designed my little farm here in Phoenix is I don't really have farm waste. Are you just proposing that it's there and you're reusing it for something else? Yeah, so the the Japanese word is muta. And muta means any, and we translate it in English as waste, but it's a more complicated concept. And it essentially means any activity or thing that's not contributing to value. Value essentially is anything your customer is willing to pay you for. Right. So in English, we think of waste as something we throw away. We're going to put it in the compost or we're going to trash it. It's an unusable item. But really, it, in the lean system, muda is, is, a, is a bit more nuanced, a bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. So the first workers at Toyota were actually rice farmers. So they brought these mudas. They, they had this lean way of thinking that they took to the factory floor. And the seven types of waste fit very nicely in agriculture because these rice farmers, these were the types of waste they saw on their farms. And they translate. And so the most, they translate to the factories. The most insidious of them is overproduction. Mm. 20% of fresh fruits and vegetables that are that are grown in this country do not get harvested. These are called walk-by losses. Oh, in other wow. words, it's just simply a matter of farmers not connecting closely enough with paying customers at the beginning of the season and overproducing. Right. And it can be very easy to get in that habit. So the first thing I recommend to people is get a handle on who your customer is, when do they want it, and how much. Those three points. What do they want? When do they want it and how much? And the more precisely you answer those questions and deliver on the answers, the more profitable you'll be at the end of the year. So the key is really to talk to your accounts, talk to your chefs or whoever you're going to sell food to before you buy the seeds. And we always try to sell everything and then buy seeds and grow it. Yeah, one of the things that I did when I was farming here in Phoenix while in college was I made friends with a couple of the chefs and I said to them, well, what would you like me to grow? And then I essentially contracted, grew for them. Uh Uh-huh, that's perfect. Instead of growing it and then trying to push it, trying to find find your customers. Exactly, exactly. Plus, the other thing I've done here at the Urban Farm is I love fruit trees. So I've, you know, planted fruit trees over the years and, you know, during peach season, there's there's no problem with getting rid of peaches at, you know, at my favorite chef's restaurant. Uh-huh. I'm sure that's not a problem. So what kinds of things are you growing on your farm? Our main crop would be artisan tomatoes. And we grow those in a greenhouse and we grow them for six or seven months out of the year. Have have a product to offer six or seven months out of the year. Wow. And then we grow greens probably as a as a runner up item, second most profitable item. And baby salad mix, baby spinach, arugula, that sort of thing. Small greens. And at this point we use this Japanese paper pot transplant system to grow basically everything that we that we grow. Tomatoes you still have to hand transplant, but mm-hmm. Everything else, beets and turnips and a lot of these crops can be transplanted very quickly from a comfortable upright position with this thing. And, and we are also a four-season farm. And so in our we have four greenhouses, and, and we would heat them to mid-20s all winter. Oh, and wow. in, our, in northern Indiana, that's warm enough to keep the, the greens alive throughout the winter oh, yeah, so we have something, something to offer. So you're harvesting during the winter and delivering out your produce. Uh-huh. And so one tip is 
if you want to get it, if anyone wants to get into winter production, it's really, you can do it in a home garden and just purchase some row covers. And my tip is don't think of it as growing in the winter. You want to grow your crops in the fall and then you store them in the ground throughout mm. the winter months. Yeah. So you, you use the garden as a living root settler in a sense. Oh, interesting. And you just keep layering row covers or blankets or insulating sheets or whatever you have over them or straw, whatever you have to keep them, keep them warm as the season gets, as it gets colder, then you need more insulation over the crops. But yeah. you can harvest many, many, many vegetables all throughout the winter. Just cover enough straw, enough insulation over them. Yeah. Well, we have the exact opposite problem here. Winter is the perfect time to grow here in the, you know, in the low desert in okay. Phoenix. Uh-huh. Our July, August, September, it's almost impossible. Yeah, it's brutal. It's almost mm-hmm. impossible to grow here. So I pretty much slow down and give up during that period of time. Well, that's smart. Yeah. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that fairy, and what you might have learned from it. I would go back to the story of the failures of my greenhouses. And I've actually had four greenhouses that have ended up in neighbors' fields oh, or on roofs gosh. or whatever. Right. And most of this has been just, I was in too much of a hurry, too busy, working too quickly, trying to get too much accomplished. And I had I, I had a dysfunctional relationship with time. And one of my favorite authors is John O'Donohue. And he says that stress is an inverse relationship to time. Oh, and yeah. So what he means is that time is a is a vehicle to presence. Time is a vehicle to productivity. Time is your vehicle to to living. Mm-hmm. And so it's your friend. And I used to think of time as my enemy. I was always racing against time. There's all these nefarious analogies that we use mm-hmm. when we talk about time. However, I started to ch- I change. I made that mindset change to where I now see time as my friend. It's my vehicle to being present with what I'm doing. Mm. And since doing that, we, have, we haven't lost a greenhouse. I'm present as I'm building the greenhouse. And how long it takes is less important to me now than the fact that I'm, I'm building the greenhouse and I'm aware of what I'm doing when I'm yeah. doing it. Being conscious as you're doing it. Uh-huh. You know, that is a piece of advice that we can transplant to everybody out there. It's like, get present, be patient with yourself and get present right now. Actually, I, I started getting into delving deeper into those, these concepts after looking at, after working with the, this lean production system, because mm-hmm. one of the concepts of lean is hijung, uh, which means to to level the load because when you have an uneven workload when you're overstressed overworking that is when that's when the waste creep in to your production system right okay that's when you're going to overproduce that's when defect the waste of defect is going to creep in you're going to do a poor job harvesting or processing that's when overburdening waste is going to happen you're, you're working too hard and your back goes out and so lean really encourages this this focusing focusing on value and making sure you level your load out, not just throughout the course of a year, which we do. We try to, you know, we try to get jobs done in the winter, and and so that we don't work ourselves too hard in the summer. And we actually take a, we take a couple of weeks off in our peak season in July, so we have energy throughout the year. Wow, good for you. You want to level the load throughout a month, even throughout a week, and so we no longer do our harvest just on fr- on Fridays, for instance. We harvest a couple hours every morning. Mm and try to spread out the most burdensome part of our work, which was harvest. And even in the course of a day, they say that humans work most efficient, we work most efficiently in 90-minute chunks. Right. You know, once you get beyond an hour and a half to use a lean analysis, the waste start to creep in. <laughs> yeah. Okay, your 
you're over-processing, you're over-producing, and they're going to have problems. And so what we really try to do is is to start work at 7 o'clock in the morning, work for an hour and a half, take 15, 20 minutes, work for another hour and a half, take a one-hour lunch, and then do another one or two 90-minute chunks in the afternoon. And that has really helped some of these concepts that seem to have nothing to do with production, would have to do more with psychology, have really helped to boost our production. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like this whole lean system is based on some ancient wisdom, actually a fair amount of ancient wisdom. Uh Uh-huh. And we could have a two-hour podcast talking about all this. But one of the pieces that I think is most interesting about the the origins of the lean system is a a Japanese and and Asian system. Uh During the Industrial Revolution, the period of the Industrial Revolution in the U.S., during the 1700s, we had constant and very rapid expansion of our agriculture. Right. Okay, we were pushing the Native Americans off the land. And all of a sudden, these Europeans coming over here, and they had access to hundreds and thousands of acres of land. And they weren't constrained by farming, having to farm on tiny plots. And that has really shaped our agriculture here. Mm, yes. And we still have this expansionist mindset. At that same time, in Japan, their population was growing to the point where the, basically the island was filling up. And they had a growing population, and yet it's an island. So they had less land with which to grow food to feed the growing population. Mm-hmm. And so at that same time period in history, those farmers had an opposite challenge. Okay. Right. They had the challenge of growing more food on less land. And so what happened was what historians call Japan's industrious revolution. Mm -hmm. They learned how to grow efficiently and they actually did it. They increased food production through that time period and they increased lifespan by by 10 years. We know this through historical records. So people were eating more, they're eating healthier, and there's less land on which to grow the food. And that that sort of lean mindset has continued to shape Japanese yeah. farming, and it continues, and that's the reason I stalk Japanese farmers on Instagram, for instance. <laughs> we a lot of our systems from farmers in that context because they have, for decades, for centuries, been been producing lots of food on small plots, and they've really honed their systems. Yeah. And we're 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 needing to catch up to learn from them. Nice, nice. Love that history. Thank you for that. So, what do you consider one of your biggest successes? I would say that my biggest success is the weekly success of knowing that our food is ending up on hundreds of local plates. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing more than that just makes our work so satisfying because I think it is so important in your work, whatever work you do, to know that you're making a positive contribution yeah. to someone you know, to your local community, to, to a real person some, some, somewhere, that your work isn't just completely abstract. And, and, and we, we know our customers. We, it's a small community, it's a small Mennonite community, and we know our customers, and it's very physical work that we do, and we're giving in an object we know is going to decrease the cancer rate in Goshen, for instance, our town. Right. And it's going to make people, make people healthier, and it, it couldn't make a more positive contribution than that. Sweet. And it sounds to me like maybe what drives you kind of falls in that category as well. Absolutely. Because what drives me is to waste less every year in our food, in our growing and to produce more value, more food for our customers mm-hmm. every year. And it's a never ending challenge. There's always, there's always more waste to get off the farm, always more waste to root out of our production system. Mm-hmm. And there's always more mouths to feed too. I think we could be growing a lot more. Yeah. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Okay. So it's an obscure kind of Japanese book. It was translated to English a few years ago. It's called Teichi Ono's Workplace Management. Teichi Ono was one of the designers of the lean system. Mm -hmm. He wrote this beautiful little chap 
book, just a short book, around 100 pages or so. And he, he explains some of all these, these concepts I'm talking about here. However, he's very curt and very direct. No, of course. His chapter titles would be things would be such as if you're wrong about something, admit it. So that's the title of a chapter. Oh, and so I love the direct writing style, and there's a lot of great information, a lot, a lot of wisdom in there. Yeah. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? My best piece of advice is to maintain a go- even if you grow just one tomato plant. It's in our DNA, in our genes, to have a relationship with food. And I we talked about this idea that we need to have a the right relationship with time. And I, f- I have found that working with plants, even if it's only to maintain, to do you know weekly maintenance, is the best way that I know of to bring yourself into a right relationship with time. Yeah. Because it's very easy to get sucked in, to focus on what is happening around you, to really, to find presence when you're working with plants. Yeah. So maintain a garden. That's my tip. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. How can our listeners get a hold of you? There's a couple options. The easiest is to go to my webpage, claybottomfarm at gmail. I'm sorry, claybottomfarm.com. And then my email is claybottomfarm at gmail.com. Perfect. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash claybottomfarm. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. Also, visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. If you want to add a little bit more life to your backyard, have you considered trying chickens, goats, or other small farm animals? It's actually easier than you think, especially when you have Kari Spencer to help you get prepared. Just text CHICKENS to 33444 or visit BackyardFarmAnimals.com and you will receive our free webinar on how to raise chickens, goats, and more, promote biodiversity, and put your backyard animals to work. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.